Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today we're speaking with Dr. Peter Fever, a longtime researcher of civil military affairs. He is most recently the author of a comprehensive study of public attitudes towards the military called Thanks for Your Service causes and consequences of public competence in the U.S. military. He's also a professor of political science and public policy at Duke University, served twice on the National Security Council staff, and as an intelligence officer in the Navy Reserves. Peter, thanks for joining us on Hot Wash. Thanks for having me. So the book is an in-depth, data-driven look at the attitudes of Americans towards the U.S. military as an institution, what drives it, what drives that confidence, why it matters. I think one of the things that makes it so effective is that you've been doing this a while, this this topic. Uh, talk about where this research started for you. Right. That's a very uh, kind way of saying I'm very old. <laughs> uh, but uh, this about 25 years ago, I led a big study with Richard Cohn called the TIS study on the gap between the military and civilian society. And it produced a book. And in that book, there was a chapter I wrote with a colleague of mine, Paul Gronke that looked at public confidence in the U.S. military in the late 90s. And we concluded, when you dug into the data, that public confidence was uncertain, we said. It's high but uncertain. It was brittle and was likely to um, crack and go down. Well, if you put a pin in the calendar when we published that result, Mm -hmm. early September 2001, and then track public confidence from that point on, it climbed immediately after and stayed high for another 15 years or so. Right. And so about five years ago, uh, I and another colleague, uh, Jim Golby, said, let's take a look at why I was so wrong with that prediction. Right. Right. Uh, right. What's the underlying dynamic? So I started, uh, we started together really digging into that question. This book is the result of that effort. And ironically, my conclusion today is the same one it was 20 some years ago. Uh, that the public confidence is high but hollow. Right. That is to say, it is high, but the underlying drivers of it are likely to trend negative, and some aspects of it are hollow, could you know collapse relatively quickly. And so the military would be wise not to believe their own PR, mm. uh, which you know emphasizes how the public has high confidence in them, because that may be a transient fact. Indeed. In the last year or two, you've seen public confidence in the military decline. Right. It's still high relative to other institutions, and that's important, but it's declined. So the military is a, a big institution. It's made up of a lot of different types of people and people with varying levels of control over their lives. Um, how, how do you disaggregate public attitudes toward the soldier, sailor, marine, airmen, airwomen versus the generals with a capital G. Does the does the general public separate the political uses of the military, the top level strategy or effectiveness versus those values of service? So the stories of heroism, et cetera, that we hear. The public does not draw the fine distinctions that matter to you and me and others who are you know really. Uh, closely following national security affairs. And indeed, the theory of American civil-military relations has all sorts of important normative thresholds. You know, if you're on this, then you behave this way. If you're in that, you behave another way. But a lot of that granularity is lost in the American public. Right. They don't don't know much about the, um, the military. Indeed, ironically, one of the few things they do know 
and will answer with confidence is the fact that other Americans seem to have high confidence in the military. So that right. fact. So there's a bandwagon effect. Everyone, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah there's, this, it's a social fact. People seem to know right. that the other public, uh, sorry, the rest of the public has high confidence in the military. That's true, but that's about it that they know. So let me, one important distinction, retired versus active duty. That's a huge distinction when it comes to your legal rights and your professional ethical obligations. There's things you're allowed to say as a as a veteran that you're not allowed to say as an active duty uh, member in uniform. That distinction appears to be lost on the American public. They know in theory that a retired person is different from an active duty person in theory, but being able to tell which right. is which and when their first name is admiral or general regardless uh i think some of those distinctions get lost so that's that's another thing the book digs into mm-hmm. and when you do ask the public <clears throat> uh what's your confidence in the military in the abstract what's your confidence in senior military leaders what's your confidence in rank and file what's your confidence in military members you know as mm-hmm. opposed to military members you don't know you do get slight variations so it's not the exact same um, confidence interval sure. for, or level for every single one. But the differences tend to be relatively minor. And so that's why I think the public kind of views the military in the abstract. Right, right. And that's similar with, say, confidence in Congress. Confidence in Congress with a capital C is very low. Confidence in my representative tends to be higher than that than that number, of course. Yes. The precisely. difference being of such a, you know, everybody's got a congressman, very few people uh, actually serve or, or have served or, but uh, know somebody who served, or know yeah. somebody who served. Exactly. Right. And those numbers are going down. Right. That's one of the props that key, that has kept public confidence relatively high is we had the world war two generation with us for a long time. We had the draft generation with us, but those are now passing the right. scene. And what's left is a much smaller, all volunteer force alumni or veteran population. And, and those numbers are going to shrink. Uh, and if we continue the trend of recruiting right. primarily from within the ranks of former uh, servicemen and women, then then that could be even narrower still. So uh, one of the charts uh, that surprised me a little bit was just looking at the gross numbers of confidence in the military. Uh, there actually is kind of a peak around the end of the Vietnam War, kind of in the mid in the mid seventies, right? Like I, I was looking at one of the charts. And between it falls off precipitously kind of right. after we we withdraw from Vietnam. But uh, in talk about that, that period. And then I guess the real nadir is what, 1980, somewhere right around around there. Stripes, the the, the right. That's a perfect the movie stripes represents the perfect symbolic. Role. Yeah. Yeah, when you're if you're not good enough to do anything, you can't even be good as a taxi driver. Join the army. Uh, <laughs> so, one of the props undergirding public confidence is what I call patriotism, but really referring to are we at war? There's a rally to the military when we're at war, right? And even if it's a war that's somewhat unpopular, uh, there's still going to be a you know support the troops kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, at least that seems to have been the pattern over the last 40 plus years. Right. So as one of the reasons why we expected public confidence to go down in the late 90s, we didn't anticipate the 9-11 and the, the 20 years of the global war on terror. 
Of course, now we've, we're leaving that in the rear view mirror. Right. And while right. we have a geopolitical challenge in China, it feels more like a Cold War vibe than active conflict like the Iraq war at the height. And so the, the rally to the troops prop is going away. Um, and, uh, and, and that, I think, contributes to a drop. Likewise, in the late 70s, right. early 80s. A second big prop is the assessment of performance. How good is the military what they do? Right. If you remember, there was a the, the failed Iran hostage rescue right. mission in 1980 and uh, and the uh, the sense that man we just can't we we can't do we're not good at what we do um and that was something that uh Ronald Reagan invested heavily in in uh, restoring the sense that the military can do what they can what we've asked them to do and then desert storm of course was the apparent confirmation of that it it, it also felt like at least during the 80s that there was a, a kind of counter counterculture reaction to, you know, uh, at least I think the the historical perception, and I don't don't actually know how much of this was was is myth versus reality that that Vietnam returning Vietnam veterans were mistreated, right? And then in the eighties there was a kind of Reagan in America, uh, patri- growing patriotism, and the POW MIA flag movement which we we've talked with some authors on the show about that really surged i think even in the 80s and kind of grew over those years sure. um how much of that starts at that point to become well i guess in vietnam it was it was really partisan too but a kind of a cultural i'm interested in these kind of cultural tribal identifiers that we've gotten right. into this tribal split now you know is is that putting up a pow mia flag or or wearing a bracelet or something was one of those cultural shibboleths, you know, that, that identified you as part of that clan. Right. I think several things are going on. Um, and when I teach this, I actually teach a course with General Dempsey called American Grand Strategy Through Film. And so we, uh, we track how popular film captures uh, the zeitgeist of right, our right. view. And of course, since we, he and I are both interested in civil mill, we lean heavily on civil mill films. And if you pair Stripes with Top Gun, mm. four or five years away from each other, right. you get very different vibes. Obviously, one was trying to be a comedy. The other is trying to be a drama, right. actually romantic uh, romance. But but in Top Gun, the, the and my students always miss this, the, the underlying question is, Exercise, can we exercise the ghost of Vietnam, right? So that's where Maverick is is trying to deal with what did his dad do right? Did we do right? And it's not until he gets, uh, uh, you know, Viper tells him, yes, you, you you did do right. Your your dad did right in Vietnam that he's able to then, spoiler alert, you know. <laughs> okay. So yes, that there was something about Ronald Reagan trying to bury the ghost of Vietnam. Ironically, Ronald Reagan probably didn't bury the ghost of Vietnam. And George H.W. Bush, H.W., the father, said, that's after Desert Storm, we've buried the ghost of Vietnam. But within a couple of years, in the middle of the Iraq War, it sure did not feel like we had buried the ghost of Vietnam. So that ghost keeps coming back to haunt. But that's one of the the lines. The other line that really has to be emphasized here is the shift to the all-volunteer force, Mm. which really is an all-recruited force. 
And so what you see by the 80s is a uh, a really large effort to persuade young people to join the military, uh, that this is a noble cause, that doing so will make them a better person. And, um, and that message is being, you know, broadcast in all of the venues that become the place where we as Americans uh, come together, regardless of party. So right. the football games and sporting events, it, it became part of the civic religion, the, the flyovers at the football games, right. the, the holding the flags. I, that also contributed to making the military symbolically more salient, even as the number of people who had con- personal connections to the military is going down. And so you get this high regard for the military, but at high remove. Uh, thanks for your service. I'm glad you're doing it. Right. So I don't have to. Right. I think one of the quotes I noted from the book, I think it was another researcher who is saying that the, the, the shift to all volunteer allowed many segments of society to avoid military burden altogether, combined with a marketing campaign that reached everyone but persuaded few, only succeeding in creating patriotism light. Right. Combination of high express support and low propensity to serve. I don't go quite that far, but that is sort of the the, the strongest critique of that, uh, of the impact of the shift to the all-volunteer force. And I think there's enough truth in it that we have to look at it seriously. The other piece I would say is that the Americans have done and paid for whatever was asked of them, Mm. right? So they we did not ask for a draft after nine eleven. If we had, we probably would have gotten one. Right. Um, uh, We didn't ask for a a tax, you know, war tax after nine eleven. If we had, we might have gotten one. The American people have done. In fact, we got a tax cut. But yeah. For, for <laughs> an understandable reason, that's a totally different podcast. But right, right. You know, the whole economy had frozen up, uh, and the, um, the the fear was that that this one attack would, through psychological means, have a you know repercussions that would be catastrophic economically. Uh, absolutely, I mean that was the cognitive dissonance: is, is you had a yeah. a generation of young people who were motivated to serve by nine eleven, and at the same time. You essentially had leaders telling the rest of us, your patriotic duty is to go out and consume, yeah. is to shop. Right. I mean, what, what talk about that p- the potential danger of putting service members on a pedestal uh, in veterans? Right. In the book, I uh, use a very inelegant term called pedestalization. Uh, that is exactly this phenomenon where you hold the military in high esteem at high remove, so much so that you put them on a pedestal. Mm. And then that's a shaky place to be, right? They're easily knocked off. Uh, And the flip side of that is if they're up there, they're looking down on you. uh, And there's an opportunity for alienation from that way. One of my colleagues says, what happens to a generation of military leaders who've been told for decades now that they represent the best of American society? Well, at some point they begin to think they're better. Than American right. society. That's the that's the flip side of pedestal uh, pedestalization, and components of that are things like giving the military insulation from accountability. Uh, one of the findings in the book is that the public tends to give the military credit for good news in the war, but blame civilians for bad news mm. <laughs> in the war. 
Uh, in particular, they blame the civilians of the other party, which creates an opportunity for the military to play a partisan blame game where they are, you know, with Republicans, they are, the Republicans will say, Republican leaders and the military did pretty well. It's the Democrats who screwed it up. Democrat respondents will say, Democratic leaders and the military did pretty well. It's the Republicans who screwed up. And the military can avoid the tough questions and accountability that perhaps they need to face uh, by hiding behind this uh, partisan blame game. So on the, on the flip side, I mean, faith in institutions has fallen across the board since the yes. since the 70s. Um, it's especially low with, with young people. I mean, why do you think that confidence in the military has actually been as resilient as it has been? Well, it has a number of props. And, and so the, the, uh, I've mentioned several already. The, a couple more is the, that the idea that the public has that the military tends to be professionally ethical, right. live up to high ethics. And if you prime the public with concerns about the ethics and behavior of the military, you can cause public confidence to drop. So in other words, the public has baked in the expectation that the military does not engage in misbehavior. When, it's con- when the public's confronted with evidence to the contrary, say the sexual assault, sexual harassment challenge problem, the epidemic maybe, better work, that's going to create uh, problems in public confidence. Well, compared to other institutions, the belief is that the military is patrolling its own. It is... Right you know, um, cleaning house when it needs to. Uh, Then the other factor, and this is one of that has changed dramatically in the last two years, but is the partisan divide. So part of what kept public confidence in the aggregate high was the fact that Democrats had fairly high confidence in the military. That's a change from, say, the 60s, maybe, or but Republicans had super high confidence. It was almost a, an identity thing. To be right. Republican meant you had confidence in the military. If you had confidence in the military, chances are you were right, right. a Republican. And right. that, uh, that tribal identity uh, dimension has changed in the last several years. And I trace it to mid-September 2020 when then-President Trump running for re-election so frustrated by his criticism, actually frustrated that the press was giving praise to General Milley and other and G- General um, Kelly and and others who had served Mattis, who had served in his administration, then were somewhat critical of the president. General uh, President Trump sort of turned on this, his own senior military and said, "They're they're, they're warmongers. They want to go to war to sell weapons. I'm with the rank and file." But he created permission space to start attacking the military using right. uh, tropes that you know were really drawn from the far left anti-militarist uh, you know wing of the Democratic Party, but using them uh, in on his behalf. That gets echoed by Tucker Carlson and other re- opinion leaders on the right. And the biggest drop in among uh, respondents is among Republicans in the last several years. And I think in part responding to the cues that they're getting from Republican opinion leaders that say, it's okay to criticize the military now. Talk about how the withdrawal from Afghanistan affected confidence in the military overall. 
in the short run, it did not hurt public confidence in the military per se. So I think the military is able to avoid, I mean, it, it hurt in the margins, but it, the military is, it was able to avoid the collapse in confidence that you might have expected from something that General Milley called was a strategic defeat. Right. Uh, he, that did not collapse public support, not yet. Uh, that's where the blame game uh, seems to be playing in place. The Democrats say, yeah, re- Trump basically let, uh, gave Biden no choice. And Republicans say, this is Biden's fault. If only Republicans had been in power, they, they would not have let this happen. And so it becomes a partisan war, but or you know, a, an interpretation through the partisan lens rather than blaming it on the military. What will be interesting to see is as this war goes more and more into the rearview mirror two, three, four years from now, will it be remembered that way or will it have some of the lingering um, challenges and interpretations and debates really that emerged after Vietnam? And it's, I would say it's too, uh, too soon to tell. Right now, the Republicans are, are campaigning for the ones running for re-election or not re-election, r- running for election in 24 to try to be the president are all saying that this is all Biden's fault. Right. And they're not right. really blame, they're not really leveling blame on the military per se for Afghanistan. They're blaming Biden. I mean, that's what's always so fascinating to me is it's a, a tragic event, tragic for, for Afghans, but it really is uh it's a culminating event. It's not it it almost allows people to pass by the larger discussion of the 20 years and multiple presidents and multiple congresses that that all had a hand in creating that situation. I guess that's also the uh, you, you know the recency bias in polling. It's it's difficult for people to look at long-term trends and you know one of the things you you write about is is uh giving quizzes to members of the public and talking about w- what are the things that they think are true that are definitely not right and uh, their total misperception about casualties in Afghanistan versus Vietnam or right. or even Iraq I, I mean t- talk about how what to you are the surprising or at this point I don't know if you're surprised about anything but uh <laughs> but uh what what was to you the most interesting disconnect between the general public's knowledge about uh, the military and the use of military versus versus the reality well uh, the most interesting finding to me was not so much in the disconnects, but in the degree to which there was social desirability bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, th- that refers to when a respondent gives the answer they think they are, is the correct answer to give or the appropriate politically correct answer, but may not be their actual view. Mm-hmm. And if you use survey techniques, you you can tap into what their latent view is, but they're 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 not going to share it openly with you. Right, and when you use those techniques, you find that public confidence in the military is anywhere from eight to twenty-seven points inflated by this social desirability bias. That the high confidence numbers we see in the aggregate would actually be considerably lower if people were sharing their true views. And and here now I'm extrapolating from the data: if the permission space of the elite discussion changes. If it suddenly becomes okay to say, uh, to make very critical, hold very critical views of the military, uh, then 
there's a, sort of a latent uh, pool of people who will f- find that their previously quote unquote incorrect view is now accepted and they're free to to share it. So you could see the numbers drop dramatically. Yeah, that that surprised me. And, and indeed, I won't hang my hat on the precise degree of social desirability bias. I want to see other scholars measure and refine it because uh, I, I'm now convinced there's some there. I'm surprised that the numbers were as high as, as our data, my data showed them to be. Uh, by the way, the, the data are available for everybody to download. So they're on the Harvard Dataverse and you can get access to them and do redo all the analyses or but we also uh, there, there's so many other questions that barely got addressed in yep. the book so uh, I hope a lot of your yeah and there's quite a lot I mean it's not uh, it's not really just this simple top line question of confidence it's I mean you attempt to go at it from a, a number of different angles to try and untangle this uh, one other uh, two other things I wanted to say uh, just threads that on things we've already talked about. One is the, the it turns out there's an interesting relationship between people's attitudes or confidence in other institutions and their confidence in the military. But it divides by whether they're Republican or Democrat. So with Democrats, confidence in other institutions correlates directly with confidence in the military. If you have high confidence in other institutions, you're likely to have high confidence in the military. You're a, for Democrats, you either kind of trust government, then you trust all of the institutions, Mm. or you kind of don't trust government, then you don't trust the military along with anyone else. For the the Republicans, though, it goes the other way. Mm. So if you have low confidence in other institutions, you're likely to have high confidence in the military among Republicans. So it's a... um, Oh, interesting. It's inverse. Inverse. Inverse for So, for example, Republicans right now are probably have lowest levels of confidence in the FBI, uh, uh, you know, probably entire history. I don't have a lot of good data on the FBI, but say Congress. That's right. where we're okay. going. Okay. So um, uh, Republicans, low confidence, confidence in Congress, likely to have high confidence in the military and vice versa. Right? If they have high confidence in the military, right. likely to have low confidence in the Congress. Mm-hmm. That's Republicans. But in Democrats, it goes in tandem. And that's an interesting distinction that show, you know, partisanship is just a very powerful lens in our right. in, in our lives. And it shapes how we, you know, how we understand and engage with the world. That's the first point. And then you just I want to go back to the point about Afghanistan. There may have been more of a reckoning in Afghanistan. We may have been heading towards that in the late 2021 timeframe. And then the Ukraine war started. Mm. And that, in a sense, really uh, seized the public attention. And understandably, it's an uh, event of enormous geopolitical consequence. And that, I would say, interrupted the the really painful and, I think, necessary one day uh, reckoning that we do, reckoning that we do uh, with the G1. But Right now, we've got a war to fight, and so um, I think that's kind of put things on hold. But as you and said it's, again, it's 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 a different kind of war. It's more like a cold war, and uh, it, so we don't. Yeah. I mean, 
ostensibly we we're not be able to do both, but uh, the American public is not able to do both. <laughs> there you go. That's that's a good takeaway, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. So you've made recommendations in the past about good practices for uh, members of the military and, and, and veterans in terms of civil and military affairs. Let's talk about that politicization in terms of uh, of veterans. And obviously, if, if you're serving, it's illegal or you can be strictly disciplined for expressing a partisan opinion. Um, we, we, we had Stuart Scheller on the podcast a, a while back uh, when his famously uh, viral comments about Afghanistan. Uh, how do you understand the role of veteran generals, now they're civilians, becoming commentators across the board on cable news? How does that contribute to that politicization or that political view of the institution? Well, here's an area where the poll results, the data did not um, behave the way I expected slash wanted to from a normative point of view, in that I would like it to be the case, and I've told the military this, and I still think it's true in the long run, but the data show it's not true in the short run, that if the military gets politicized, public confidence in the military will go down. I think that's true in the long run, still do, but the data show that in the short run, something else even more pernicious is happening because the civilian, the, the public, defines politicization to be when the military is doing things that the other party supports. So it, but when the military is doing things that I support, my party supports, right. I'm not going to call that politicization. <laughs> right. And so the public's not, in fact, enforcing the rules. They're not a fair umpire. They are a totally biased umpire, the public, that calls, you know, fouls on the military only when they're following the lead, you know, or doing what the other party is, right. has told them to do. So this creates a an opportunity for really pernicious politicization, right? Because the military has to obey the new leaders if when the right. executive changes hands doesn't have a choice, but they're going to be accused of being politicized or political, engaging in partisan politics when they do so. And of course, we're seeing that right now. There's a really determined um, opposition research effort conducted against the military right now by uh, mostly conservatives on the far right uh, regarding the Biden administration's policies, which right. of course the the military has to uh, follow because President Biden's the president. Um, and uh, but now they're getting, you know, uh, attacked. If for following the policies. And so that's that creates a problem. That means that the we can't count on the public mm. to discipline the public, the military into good behavior. The military has to follow professional ethical standards, even if they're not getting rewarded by the public. That's the first big point. The second big point is. Much of the blame falls on us, the civilians. Right. We are doing a lot of the active, pernicious politicization of the military. It's campaign, it's civilian campaign managers who are rounding up the retired military to march on stage at the presidential conventions and endorse this president or that president. That's civilians enlisting the military to right. do that. Uh, and so that I, you know, a lot of my message is civilians, stop doing this. You are 
you are messing with something that's very precious, namely the nonpartisan status of a professional military. And you don't, you don't want to be playing so fast and loose with it. And yet we as civilians are doing it. Right. And we've reached a point now where we have made the military combatants in our culture war. Well, and those, I, I, mean, I mean, those generals are not automatons. They, they have agency. They, they make choices about what to say as civilians once they're retired. When they're retired, yes, yes. And to be fair, uh, the vast majority of retired general flag officers do not engage in this. Right. It's, a, it's a tiny minority, but it's a minority that has outsized salience because it is a dramatic uh, image. It helps to pass the commander-in-chief threshold test. Well, and, and some of our greatest uh, presidents have been former generals. Uh, President That's Eisenhower. A, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I draw a bright line between running for president and endorsing. Running for president, you become a partisan, and that's fine. And as you say, some great uh, presidents have been veterans. But it's when you're endorsing, and so you're trying to maintain the nonpartisan legitimacy that comes with you know an institution that's above politics, but then you're engaging in a relatively sordid partisan activity, namely campaign endorsements, right? Um, and yet not doing it running for office and saying, I'm full in, I'm a, my first name is no longer general. My first name is Republican, you know, right. or, uh, or Democrat, whatever. So uh, we got it. But going back to the, the culture war thing, we've, we've got to get out of the business of targeting the military in the culture wars. I think in the long run, this is going to be very harmful to the military if we allow this to continue. Right now, it requires change on all three sides. Republicans have to stop targeting the military. Democrats have to stop hiding behind the military, expecting the military to carry the water for controversial policies that are really civilian decided. If it's civilians decided it, civilians should be the ones defending it and advocating for it, not the military. And then thirdly, the military has to figure out a way of talking about its the values of the institution without sounding like culture warriors. And unfortunately, they sometimes are sloppy in their language and they come off sounding more like a culture warrior than they really are. Well, and there's a, uh, there is a, a, a level above which they are, are truly not just political animals, but partisan animals. They're, they're, you know, active spokespeople of the administration's positions. Um, I mean, let's, let's step back just a second. And I mean, we're, we're kind of talking around, you know, probably the, the, the most, consequential thing right now is is senator Tuberville's hold on all of the promotions right. uh you know people described the recent ndaa as you know unprecedented uh larding up of the defense bill with uh political positions from from the the right but i mean that's not entirely true uh, let's let's put that politicization in some historical context certainly the military has been a political football in the past. How, do you see what's happening now as uh, different in intensity or a different in, in kind from what's happened in the past, whether it was, you know, don't ask, don't tell, or, or, or women uh, becoming active in the military? Well, we certainly have had uh, divisive debates uh, on sensitive cultural issues before as they pertain to the military. We're on, it's the 75th anniversary. Right, integration of, in the military. Yeah, absolutely. Serve integration. Yeah. And, and so that has been a difficult issue for our society. 
and also for the military for 75 years. Um, so it's not unusual that the military uh, is at the center of a divisive issue, nor uh, is it a, uh, unusual that the um, members, some members of the military become lightning rods. So Colin Powell became right. a lightning rod in the 90s. But I think what we're seeing now is different in scale in two ways. One, the the hold that Senator Tuberville has put is so wide-reaching and has lasted for so long. That is unusual. Uh, and we're now doing really serious damage to our readiness, to uh, our capacity uh, down the road, I think, for retention. This is this is a gift. I've said in another setting, this is a gift to China that keeps giving day in, day out. We did not reach this level of damage to our readiness in previous debates. Um, and so that's, that scale is different. The other thing that's different, that the only analog I can think of is the briefly in the McCarthy attacks on the army. But if you go on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, um, there's there's a political action group that's done opposition research on all 300 of the general flag officers for which there's a hold, and they've dug up video where you know they're making some banal comments about you know I'm I'm all for you know recruiting diverse Americans or something like that right. you know it's, it's 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 innocuous stuff, but it's chopped the way you know campaign opposition researchers do and it it's turned and put a you know a negative label and said this guy is a uh, woke warrior uh, and that's why we need to put a hold on him and they're going after you know one and two star very obscure officers uh, who may have been a very important role let me just say very important role but they've not been a public target i mean in the past the senate uh, uh you know, confirms them on bond. Uh, exactly. Right. Like, 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 like huge lists of people at the same time. Yeah. And so I think you really have to go back to the McCarthy era to where you had that level of granularity after uh, going after by name uh, individuals in a sort of, uh, you know, vicious partisan kind of way. That's different. And I do think that that uh, will not be good for civil military relations. I mean, it's, it's creating a toxic environment. And of course, what goes around comes around. So you can just imagine eventually we'll have a Republican administration that will, we're writing the playbook right now for how the Democrats might go after Republican military appointees. Um, and it, you know, it's not, it's going to be bad. It's a, it's a vicious poisonous cycle that we've got to get out of. Well, so, and it's the same, same issues in the, in the foreign service. I mean, you start diminishing the pool of people who are willing to subject themselves to that sort of thing. Precisely. And, and so let me just be clear at the heart of this, this was really your first question. There's a legitimate policy dispute between Senator Tuberville and Secretary Austin. What is the best way to respond to the Dobbs decision in light of change uh, states setting up different standards. That's a new environment. We haven't encountered that before. Reasonable people can disagree on how to handle that. Uh, you can imagine that there's a principal disagreement, but we are very, very far from that principal disagreement now, given where we are in late August with um, months and months of of frozen 
promotions and no end in sight. That's the scary thing. No one I talk to can come up with the how will this end. Uh, right. And that so that suggests that we could be doing this damage. But I think what I'm hearing from you is that it's the the overdone window of what's acceptable in terms of of, of criticizing the military has been so expanded yes. that uh, there's broad based, I think, political support. As long as these people are associated with the other party, there are so these are yeah. Biden's nominees these are biden's promotions right that uh denial is is success there's there's no incentive really for moving towards a resolution with this uh, yes and i would say that there is worse than what you say that it's working for senator tuberville in a narrow parochial political sense right he's he's raising money off of it he's uh more popular with one faction of the republican party it's not popular in general, I'd, I'd say the, the when you poll, depending on how you ask the question, um, there's not strong support for putting holds on generals and admirals like this. Right. Uh, and there's a debate about uh, what's the appropriate policy, and Americans are divided on what's the appropriate policy. But unfortunately for partisan warriors, it's working for them, and they're willing to allow the damage to be done to the military. In the meantime, to gain a partisan advantage, when we drag the military into culture wars like that, we are doing damage to a very precious institution on which we defend, sorry, on which we depend to defend us. And if we were in peace time and we didn't face any external threats, okay, we can go, we can do that kind of damage. But we're in a very dangerous global environment. And so it's, it's, we're, we're playing with fire here, I think, as a, as a society. So that leads me really to kind of the, the the final question is we're in the midst of a huge recruitment crisis, uh, right. probably as severe as it's been in, in a long, long time is, do you understand the recruitment confidence uh, recruitment crisis as being directly connected to this confidence issue for, uh, younger generations? Uh, or, I mean, obviously again, it's, it's a little hard to disaggregate it with the larger economic issues. And I mean, it's, it's uh, unemployment is very low across the board. It's hard to get staff, uh, for a variety of places. Uh, but how do you understand, uh, this survey data to help understand what's happening with recruitment? The short answer is it makes an already difficult environment that much harder. So it's not a tier one concern with respect to recruitment. It's a tier two concern. Tier one is labor economics, the lingering effects of COVID, the declining um, eligibility of young Americans because of medical, obesity, uh, academic standards, et cetera, the changes in the way the military tracks the use of prescription drugs, which made it makes it harder to get waivers for- We've had a, a 30% increase in the uh, prescription of ADHD medication, which in some cases makes you not qualified to. Yes. Yeah. And ironically, ironically, the military has a new system that tracks that much better than it used to. Mm. And so in the old days, you could get a waiver because uh, <laughs> it wasn't, you know, wasn't fully tracked. Right, right. Now it's fully tracked and now it's hard to get a waiver. So those are tier one concerns. I would in, in that I would also include a generational shift in the way young people think about careers and think about trade-offs and you know short-term inconvenience for long-term gain and things like that. The, 
the young people have a different approach to uh, paying their dues than, than maybe older generations. Those are tier one concerns. Tier two concerns are things like declining confidence. What we know is that declining confidence uh, affects the views of influencers who might be telling their uh, son or nephew or athlete, their coach, they say, yeah, join the military. That's a good option. But if their confidence in the military has gone down, then they're less likely to recommend service. And if their confidence in the military goes down and they think the military has somehow been politicized because it's filled with right-wing extremists, you know, if they're on the left, or if it's filled with, quote-unquote, woke warriors, if they're on the right, then they're less likely to recommend. And so in a marginally propensed individual is that much less likely to join. So it's another stone in the rucksack of the recruiter to make their already difficult job harder. But it's a tier two concern, not a tier one concern. So, I mean, if you had to predict what's what's the uh, inverse of the elephant in the boa constrictor, <laughs> so if you, this, this kind of gap, you know, if you had to predict yeah. 10 years from now, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody who joins today is going to be, what do you see this this depression in the recruitment having on the effect in the military in 10 years? Well, first of all, it's a great time to join, right? Because the opportunities for advancement. Signing bonuses are pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Signing bonuses are good. Retention bonuses are good. And the opportunity for advancement. That's, great. that's true. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, join. I, I, I told my students, join the State Department even or precisely at the time when everyone else was leaving, I right. said, because you'll be so low, you won't really interact much with the high politics right. and you'll have rapid promotion. So so I think they will be, uh, they will find their way in the institution. And provided that our senior military leaders keep their eye focus on the mission and don't get distracted by the squirrels of politicization, you know, chasing this, a politically correct fight, chasing that uh, a political attack and trying to fight back. No, stay mission focused. Then I I think the the organization will survive. We have a very highly professional force. They are the guardrails of the republic. They they the military has done very well at the meta level, given the strain that's been put on them. Obviously, there's some serious questions that have to be asked about. Afghanistan, Iraq. I'm not saying that there's no uh, accountability that's needed, but I think we should, as a society, recognize the military went through some pretty significant challenges over the last four or five years as societal, you know, forces have been pulling us apart, and the military has held uh, firm and has not um, crossed any thresholds of propriety in any massive way. That's that's good news. So I'm bullish on on the military, but I also recognize that when I talk to the military, I say, "Look, there's n there's the American way is to underfund the military in peacetime, and to discover in the early days of the war that we did this, and the, we pay for that in blood, uh, American blood, as the early units, uh, and then it takes." Ask for Smith in Korea, or precisely, precisely. So that's very American. And you know, I hope we don't head back in that. The war, the next war, could be much, uh, much more intense and 
may not give us time to uh, recover. So this is not a, a, a call for complacency, but it is uh, a reminder to the military that previous generations have managed these challenges and you can manage it as well. And so I, I would still encourage people to join the military, uh, but I would, uh, you know, I'm loudly beating the drum to the rest of uh, those in the political elite to uh, reform our behavior so that we stop putting these strains on the military. And if you if you had to sum up what that takeaway is for the civilian leadership, how should they attempt to disengage the military from the partisan battles that are going on? They should learn what best practices of civil military relations is. There was an open letter in the War on the Rocks uh, in September 22, I believe it was, Signed by almost all, all but one of the retired secretaries of defense, all but one of the retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It laid out what best practices was in civil military relations. I think everyone in the civilian elite should read that list, reflect on it, and say, okay, this is what we expect from the military. What does that imply as to what should be expected of me as member of Congress or as, you know, uh, civilian in the executive branch or as political leader? Uh, leader in the executive branch. The military study these issues. Too often, the civilians do not. The same civilians who are the civilian in civil military relations, who are the civilian in civilian control, but they're not studying their role. And so I think there's a need for civilians to take, you know, go to school basically on what their role is and what best practice should be. Of course, there's also a role for the military to keep studying that. But uh, the the real gap is on the civilian side, I believe. The, the real knowledge gap is on the civilian side. Well, a, a good place for civilians to start is this book. Well, thank you. <laughs> the, the book is Thanks for Your Service, The Causes and Consequences of Public Confidence in the U.S. Military by Peter Fever. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Hot Wash. I ho- hope to have you back. Well, thank you. It's been great. I hope I get to come back. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. We've also just launched a Friday Digest called Hot and Cold with the week's most read articles and some that are flying under the radar. So be sure to look for that. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.